This is Joel Johnson, Senior Minister at Parkview Christian Church. I want to thank you for listening to our sermons online. If you have any questions, feel free to contact me by email at joeljohnson at parkviewfinley.org. Last week, Jonah's message covered Romans chapter 12, and I want to remind you of Paul's words from verse 2. He said, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. A clear statement of how significant the pressure of this world is influencing us. Everything that we, we see, everything that we read, the entertainment that we take in, our interactions pressing us to conformity, stamping us into this pattern. Paul's reminder is that we need to break free from that pressure and be transformed. Allow the Spirit of God to renew our minds. Help us gain a fresh perspective on life. Paul described that process in chapter 12 as uh, learning to love, an active love, a love that must be sincere as we hate what is evil and cling to what's good, Paul described that process to us. Today, as we move into chapter 13, we have a continuation of that thought as we learn more about what this love of God that we express looks like, how it changes our relationships, how we begin to view others through the image of this love. Now remember, as we've been moving through the entire book of Romans, the overarching themes that Paul has brought up to us again and again. First, that the law cannot bring about salvation. The law of, that God handed to Moses, who told all the Israelites their responsibility. The Jewish people who had, who had trusted in the law to perfectly keep the law and earn their salvation from God, that was not the case. And Paul's reminder to the Christians who were both from Jewish background and Gentile background, not to think about earning salvation, but instead to trust Jesus Christ as Messiah, Savior, and Lord, the one through whom they would find love and grace. Now, Paul is coming to wrap up those themes together toward the end of the book of Romans. We're in chapter 13. We're getting close. And today, reminder is the law can't save you, but that doesn't mean that you're free from the laws of men. It doesn't mean you have no responsibility to the laws of God. We're still expected to obey, to learn to grow in our obedience to God. And so Paul's going to tell us through this chapter how we do that, how we grow in obedience is an important part of our faith. We're going to begin reading in chapter 13, verse 1. If you have a Bible and you want to open with me, please do so. The words will be on the screen. If you want to use the YouVersion app, just open the app on a phone or tablet. Click on Events and search under Events for Parkview Finley, and you'll find Scripture and Sermon Notes in the YouVersion app as well. Let's begin reading together. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except what God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They're God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, 
pay your taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Now, this first passage in chapter 13 is important for us to first consider against the background, the original context in which it was written. Paul's writing to Christians in Rome under the rule of the Roman Empire, under the rule of Caesar, a very strict, rigid authority, centurions, armies, keeping order. And it would be important for the believers within that context to understand the most important thing for them would be to spread the gospel message of the love and grace of Jesus Christ. In order to do that, they would need to live under the authority of Rome and live with respect to have lives that the Roman citizens could respect so that when it was time for them to share the message of the love and grace of Jesus Christ, they would, the Roman citizens would be willing to listen to them because of their conduct, because of their behavior, because of their attitude toward Rome. It's important for us to think about that. Because when we think about Paul's words and try to apply them to our lives, now we've got some difficult words to stomach, some uncomfortable words for us to bear. These words call us to consider our own personal thoughts about authority and about the government. Paul's words, first and foremost, remind us that God has all authority. He is sovereign over all things. And as we think about what it is to respect authority, we need to remember that God established authority on earth as a representation of our relationship with him. And as we understand how to operate within that authority, we understand our relationship with God a little bit better. And because God has established authority, God takes responsibility for authority. And no matter how we feel about those who are in authority over us, one thing that we can trust is that every person in every position of authority is accountable to God for the way that they handle that authority and the way that they treat those who submit to them. And it takes a little bit of the burden away from us as we think about what it is to submit because we know that they will have to answer to God. Now, there are two key words through this section as Paul describes to us what our conduct should look like. They're submit and rebel. To submit means to subject oneself, to be subservient, to surrender your will or rights, to acknowledge another's dominion, and to obey. And that word, submit, it's so, so difficult for us to think about how we need to do that. And we recognize in our lives there are already certain relationships that we submit to easily. There are other relationships that have, it's just very difficult to defer, to submit to another person. Why? Because it requires trust. It requires us to depend on that other person, to place ourselves at their mercy, to subject ourselves to their judgment. And we want to be in control. Why would I give up that control when I know that I could do so much better, when I could, when I could guarantee success, when I, when I know what I'm capable of? Why would I Why would I defer and subject myself to another person to submit to their authority? It's such a hard thing for us not to understand. We, we, We get how it works, but it's a hard thing for us to commit to and to follow through on. 
Paul tells us that this is, the, this is the attitude that we should have toward all authority in our life, and it's a consistent message that we read throughout the New Testament. When Paul wrote to Timothy, he said this, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. When Paul wrote to Titus, he said this, remind people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always be gentle toward everyone. When Peter wrote his letter to the Christians in Rome under the rule of Emperor Nero, he said this, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the talk, the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God and honor the emperor. In the Gospels, we read about Jesus and his words about government, specifically when he was questioned with a coin. What about taxes, Jesus? What are your feelings about taxes? Should we be paying taxes to the Roman government or should we, as Jewish people, be free from those? And Jesus' answer was, well, look at the coin in your hand. Whose picture's on it? Oh, well, it's the Caesar. Very well. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but give to God what belongs to God. Those are the words of Jesus. Paul reminds us the significance of choosing to submit to authority and living in that attitude. He also says to be careful when you think about rebelling against that authority. Rebellion literally means to take a stand against. And Paul tells us when we unnecessarily rebel against authority, we're rebelling against what God has instituted on the earth, the authority that God has placed over us. And when we do that, when we push back consistently, when we press, it develops a pattern of discord that affects our thinking, it affects our attitude, it begins to affect our relationship with God. And when we approach God, we have a hard time turning off that rebellion and choosing to submit even to the will of God in our lives because it has become a pattern. Now, this doesn't mean that we should blindly follow every authority to our own spiritual detriment. That's not what Paul is saying. In fact, if we look through Scripture, we find very specific moments in which it's proper and right to stand. Jesus, in the face of the religious leaders, very clearly took a stand, opposing them from leading the Jewish people astray. In the Old Testament, very strong figures who were faithfully obedient, submitted to authority in their lives, except when that authority instructed them to sin against God. Three young Israelites, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were taken captive into Babylon, taken to the palace, recognized as young men with potential. They were trained, educated, given the best of foods from the royal table, fatty, rich foods, And the three of them together recognized that these foods weren't healthy for them. And so they went to the the guard, the man who was responsible for them, and asked the question, would it be possible for us to, instead of eating these fatty foods, eat only vegetables? We don't anything special, just we feel like this would be a healthier option for us. The guard considered, said, you know what? Let's, Let's put this to the test. You eat your vegetables for a certain amount of time. We'll let the other young men who are being trained with you, eat the fatty foods. And at the end of, at the end of this time, we'll see, we'll see just who looks healthier and, and then we'll make a decision from there. And so they, they continued on in that way. 
and Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego were strong, fit, alert. Those who were eating the fatty foods, lethargic, overindulged. And, and the guard said, you know what? This, this really is a great diet. Why don't we have all of the young men eat this diet? And then they were brought before the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, the idol, and instructed at certain times in the day, you must bow down and worship this idol of the king. And if you don't, your lives will end in a fiery furnace. And the three young men chose their moment of rebellion. Instead of sinning against God, they stood, knowing full well that the punishment would end their lives. They accepted that. And God spared them from that fate. Notice, however, their attitude toward authority when placed in a difficult situation, when, when given things that they felt they shouldn't indulge in because of their strict diet. They asked a question, could we? And they abided by the answer. Granted, the answer was in their favor, but in, they didn't rebel. They didn't push back. They didn't demand. They acted appropriately toward the authority in their lives until the right moment. Daniel in the kingdom of Persia, was an advisor to King Darius. Other advisors around grew jealous of, of Daniel because of his relationship with the king. His wisdom was beneficial, and the king relied on Daniel. The other advisors plotted against Daniel, knowing his commitment to the Lord God Almighty. They had the king write a law that everyone in the kingdom could only pray to King Darius. Obviously, Daniel was not going to comply with that. He went to his room before the window, knelt down on his knees, and prayed to the Lord God Almighty. It was a very short time before the advisors caught him, captured him, and drug him before the king. Now, the penalty for praying to anyone but King Darius was to be thrown to the lions. Daniel knew full well the punishment that would come, and he chose to take his stand. It was a moment of rebellion at the appropriate time when not standing for his convictions would have meant sinning against the Lord. Now, rebellion is a dangerous word, and it should be reserved for those specific cases that would bring us to sin against God if we're to submit to the authority over us. Paul is saying for us, under general circumstances, to live in submission to the authorities, knowing that there is a structure that God has placed on earth that helps maintain peace, keep chaos at bay, and provide for us structure for our lives. And when we live with respect for that authority, we honor that authority, we actually honor God. Honoring God in our lives comes by living with respect toward those who are in authority over us and living with respect in general towards people. Now, this is an area where each of us are challenged in different ways. When we think about what it means to respect those who are in authority over our lives, we're each challenged. And many of us are challenged in different places in our lives to respect others. Probably when I mention this idea of respecting those in authority, you automatically can think of a couple of kinds of people. The first kind of person is, is the per person with an exemplary life, whose character and quality you, you, you look up to, you want to emulate. This is a person who, who draws your respect just by the way that they live. We, we, know, we all know individuals like that. There's also another group of people that we know, people who have a position of authority that they've abused. The people who haven't lived up to our expectations in their position. And they're people that when we think about what it 
requires of us to be respectful to them in their position of authority, it grates against everything within us, and it is a real struggle even to act civilly toward them. Now, I've got a couple of questions to ask you to help us all think about how we approach this idea of submitting to authority. First, which area in your life is it most difficult for you to submit to authority? Is it at home, submitting to your spouse, to your parents, to an older brother or sister that seems to always put themselves in authority even though they don't really deserve it? What about at work with your shift manager, your supervisor, the CEO? Is it difficult for you to submit to their authority? What about on the athletic field or court? Coaches, referees, umpires. Is it hard for you to acknowledge their authority? What about school? Teachers and administrators or with your children's teachers and administrators? Is it hard for you to submit to their guidance and authority? What about in government? with the elected officials, the ones who have been placed in a seat and they are from a party that you don't agree with. How well do you submit to their authority? These are difficult questions to ask and to answer for us. Second question. In your life, think specifically, what people have a position of authority in your life? What are their names? You want to write them down in your bulletin? That's fine. You think, make a mental note. I I can very quickly come up with a dozen at least, people who have a place of authority in my life that I, I should submit to. Once you have that list, here's the follow up question How submissive is my attitude toward each of those people? How well have you been doing submitting to? those individuals who have a place of authority in your life. And finally, it's the last question. How can you demonstrate respect to each of those people, especially the ones that you don't admire, the ones who aren't living up to your expectations? How can you begin to practice this attitude of submission toward them? I didn't say it was going to be an easy answer, but it's important for us to think through how we answer those questions to adjust our thinking and our perspective toward this attitude that Paul is describing to us. What we we are learning here, this idea is a matter of value a matter of deciding how we value the people around us, especially those who have a position of authority over us. When we choose to value others, we offer them respect easily, willfully. When we devalue others in our minds, we act in a demeaning way towards them. We tear them down. When we want to break that cycle, we want to think about submitting and respecting, we have to first choose to see the value in the person before we can begin to act. Instead of looking for their faults and flaws, instead of pointing out every moment that they fall below our expectations, first we need to look at them as 
someone that God created and see the value innately inherent in them as a person. And then we need to begin looking for their strengths. We need to begin looking at how we can encourage them. We get, need to begin thinking about the burden of leadership that they carry and how some of those things maybe that we don't even like to see are a result of their commitment, a result of them taking a position maybe that they didn't want. And even though they're in a place of authority, thinking of how valuable they are in that position, holding together things that they never would have had responsibility for. How can we begin to respect and submit to those people? This is a difficult concept for us because we have a habit of using respect for leverage. And sometimes we withhold our respect from others and force them to earn it. when we hold back our respect, when we refuse to offer our respect to people, it creates a condescending superior attitude in us. And it, it honestly doesn't look very good. And we use that attitude as a reason to wait and see how that other person might prove that they're worthy of our respect. We, we put them in a deficit and wait for them to climb their way out of the hole we've created for them, knowing full well there's no way they can because we've withheld our respect. We are choosing instead to treat them with disrespect, animosity, pushing back against everything that they want for us to do. This is not a biblical model of what our attitude should be. Our consideration of others should be a reflection of the love that we have for them, the love that's supplied to us by God. In order for us to honor God through the way that we live with respect, we need to change our perspective. We need to stop being pressed into the pattern of this world and instead to transform our thinking and our perspective by allowing the Holy Spirit to renew our minds, to help us think clearly about the value and worth of the people around us choosing to submit to them. And part of that is changing our focus. Instead of thinking about what's owed to us and thinking about every, every person in authority and what we need to get from them and what they should be doing for us and how they owe us something. Instead, we, and we should be thinking about what we owe to them in their position of authority. That's what Paul said. Whatever you owe to them, pay it. If there's taxes involved, pay your taxes. If there's a cost, if there's revenue, a levy, pay it. If that person is depending on your respect, and they are, give them that respect. If they need to be honored for what they're doing, then do it. And I would go so far as to say, if they need encouragement, if you see them struggling and you know that you could help them be a better leader through your support and encouragement, give that. Help them be the leader that you want them to be instead of tearing them down. It's a significant change in perspective for us to approach our relationships, even with those who have authority over us, with a sense of responsibility first. Paul's words continue in verse 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, Paul used this word debt knowing that it would create an image in the minds of his readers in Rome. It does the same thing for us. We hear the word debt, and immediately we can all feel the weight of the burden of making payments on a loan. 
We understand what it is to pay back an amount along with interest in a regular way. And some loans, some debts that we have seem like they're never ending. Student loan payments go on for years. A mortgage payment can hang over family for decades, paying, paying, paying. It's a responsibility that we have when we sign on the dotted line, an obligation, a commitment to faithfully pay timely, completely the payment that's due when it is due. Paul points us to think about love as a standing debt that we owe, that we should be continually paying on. This provides us the clear picture to learn from as we think of our debt to love one another as our responsibility that God has given to us, that we've committed to when we commit to the Lord. To continually love, to continually make those payments, to continually, selflessly, generously, benevolently express the love of God every time that it's due. Paul says we should be paying that debt of love to one another. So who is, who is one another? Who is it that we're called to love when Paul says love others? Is it my family? Yes. My parents, my siblings? What, what about that weird uncle that always shows up at family reunions? Yes, him too. What about when I go to work? The, the people that are in, in offices and cubicles next to me? Yes, great opportunities to love others. Well, what about the guy that always has his music up too loud and is taking up too much space in the break room and frustration to everybody? Yes, even him. What about my neighbors? Every person that you have a relationship has been entrusted to you by God to love them. It's your, your debt that you keep paying on. We, we share a boundary line. I don't even know them. You still need to love them. What about the people sitting next to me at church? The family of believers that are together. Yes, love them. What about the guy on stage that talks way too long? Yeah. Love him too. What about when I go to the movies and the family behind me is chomping on their popcorn and talking through the most important part? Yes. Love them too. Love even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's difficult, even when it's frustrating, even when it's the last thing that you want to do. Take every opportunity that comes before you and believe That there are no con there are no coincidences. Pardon me. That word left my brain for a moment and then came back. There are no coincidences. We are God's handiwork. And He has prepared good works in advance for us to do. And every opportunity, every person that we bump into on the street, every person that we have some kind of interaction with is an incredible opportunity to express God's love. And it's a debt that we owe them to help them understand his love for them. And we should never stop loving others. Never. This continuing debt of love, that phrase is intriguing to me. I never think of love as a debt. I don't think of it as something that should be paid back. In fact, I've learned if, if the definition of love for you is simply giving back to people in the way that they give to you, that's not love. If you're, if you're only kind to people who are kind to you, if your spouse gives you a hug and, and you, you hug them back because they hugged you, that's not love. That's reciprocation. 
Love is generous. It's considerate. It's thoughtful. It's benevolent. It, it pushes you beyond the norm. Love requires an expense. And yet Paul says this is a continuing debt that we have to pay back. When did we become indebted? At what point did we sign this loan? How did we come to the place where we have this overwhelming, continual debt of love to pay? Well, think about how you've been loved. Think about the people in your life in the past who have continually spoken value into your life and helped you understand your worth. Think about the people who have cared for you unconditionally, no matter how harsh and rude, no matter how much you've rebelled against that relationship, how they've been there for you, guiding you and helping you be the best that you can be. Think about the cross as the image of God's overwhelming love for you, the love and grace poured out through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, providing forgiveness and salvation. These are debts that we cannot pay. There is, there is not enough love that I have to give that can compensate for all of the love that I have been given by other people, by God. And I recognize every day, every opportunity to love is a small payment, is, is a little piece of gratitude that I have for all the love that I've experienced. <laughs> it's something that I can never fully pay back. But that's a good thing too, because it helps me remember the attitude of Jesus to pour out that love for us that motivates me to care about other people. It reminds me that when I'm paying and paying and paying and never seeing the bottom of this debt, when, when I'm making those payments again and again, I think, well, at some point my balance has got to be clear. Nope, there's, there's more I have to pay, that, that it's because of how much I've been loved. And when I think about that endless debt, but there's always more, even though when I expect it to be done. It reminds me of a story from the Old Testament. The prophet Elijah, who's living in a time of drought because of the conduct of the king and queen over, over Israel. And he was traveling through an area, and God pointed him to a, a widow and, and her son who were going to provide for his needs. And he approached this, this lady, and because of the drought, Everybody in the region was, was starving. The crops had all dried up and withered. Nobody had much of anything to go around. He approached this lady and said, could you, could you bring me a, a drink of water and a slice of bread? And, and she said, I'll, I'll get you some water, but I, I don't have any bread. My son and I are living together. We, we literally are starving to death. I have nothing to give you. We have an, enough to make one more loaf of bread that we're going to make tomorrow as our last meal. And Elijah said, well, what, I want you to do something for me. Take the flour and the oil that you have ready for tomorrow and make a loaf of bread today and share it with me. And God will provide enough flour and oil for you and your son. Until the rains start to fall again, you will always have enough to sustain your need. She went home, poured out the last of her flour, poured out the last of her oil, baked a loaf of bread and brought it to Elijah. He ate with them. And the next morning, she and her son woke up, stomachs growling, moved slowly into the room where they had their supplies. 
knowing that they had used the last of what they had. She picked up the jar of flour and the jar of oil, and there was more there. She dumped it out, and it was enough to make a loaf of bread. And God sustained their need. Each day after that, there was more there, enough to fill the need in their lives. Now you think about this. Every person that you meet is hurting. Each and every one of them in the world today is in need of love. When you go to work, every person that you encounter there, from the CEO of the corporation to the new hire that started in the lowest position, every one of them you encounter is broken and hurting. Every person living in our world today has experienced loss, difficulty, pain, isolation, anxiety. And every person that you meet, whether they're smiling, well-dressed, or not, inside is dealing with something very difficult. There's a need there. And every time that you encounter them, God is presenting you with an opportunity. But think about their perspective. Every time they encounter you, they are coming with a need. And God is presenting them with enough to meet that need through you. You become that jar that is filled enough to meet the need that's present. And God is using you in their lives to meet that need if you're willing to say yes, if you're willing to begin that conversation, if you're willing to, to step through the busyness of your schedule and begin that conversation with them. You may not want to, but when you do, you become the miracle from God, supplying for their needs. As you do that, you'll find that God does the miraculous in you as well. When you have those difficult conversations with people, what you'll find is that it is exhausting. That the, you, will, you will be pushed to the limits of your mental, physical, emotional boundaries. Caring for people, having conversations, helping them with their needs. You'll, you will have a long conversation and get done and think, there's nothing more I can give. There's not, there's, I can't start another conversation. I don't have enough to genuinely care about another person. And yet the next person that walks up, when you begin that conversation, you'll find the Holy Spirit at work in you, supplying your needs to meet their needs. That's how he works. Giving us what we need to do the work of the Lord in the world around us. Now we see this picture of debt that Paul has provided describing our love. But Paul doesn't end his description simply with debt. He continues with this reminder of how love fulfills the law. And he boils the law down to this. All, all the commands you can think of, they're summarized. Jesus said this as well in, in two very simple phrases. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Paul focused on the neighbor part here, saying that all the commands that you think of, don't covet, don't steal, don't commit adultery, they all point us to the boundaries that help us love others, to help us stop acting selfishly, to stop taking advantage of other people and instead loving them. And when we love others, we are fulfilling the law of God. We are living within the bounds that he has set for us. We are fulfilling what it is that, we that he has required. And Paul says, love does no harm to a neighbor. Instead, it 
fulfills the law. But if love does no harm, what then does it do? It, it binds us together with others as it builds our relationships. And as we love, that love builds the foundation of value so that we then are able to respect the people that we need to respect. It provides for us the right state of mind to truly value them in the right way. Paul's words continue in verse 11. Do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul's words speak to us of the urgency of our situation. The time to live for the Lord is now. Speaking of the condition of the world that we live in, it is night, there's darkness around us and the deeds of darkness are being done. And we need to be prepared because the day is coming. The light is coming. And instead of being stained by the deeds of darkness, we need to instead put on the armor of light. Armor that defends us from those temptations. Armor that helps us to attack those temptations. Keep us safe. We need to be well prepared for what's coming. We need to be dressed appropriately for the occasion. I have different clothes for different things. I wear certain clothes on Sunday morning to preach it. I wear other clothes during the week when I'm working here. I wear other clothes at home when I've got a project to work on, when I'm sitting on the couch. When it's time to go to the pool, I have other clothes that I wear that I, I don't wear to other places because it's really not appropriate. I have clothes to work out in. There's appropriate outfits for specific occasions. Now, when I wear the wrong thing to the wrong place, that's when things get weird. Paul's reminder is that we always want to be overdressed for an occasion, not underdressed for an occasion. We have, in our youth group in Fort Wayne, we had kids who would go to homecoming or prom. They would be dressed up, and they made a commitment that instead of staying up all night and sleeping in through church, that they would come to church the next morning after a dance, and they would come in their tuxedos and in their, their gowns, and they would sit right in the front row. And everybody in the room knew who they were and knew about that commitment that they had, and they celebrated that with them. They stood out from among the rest of us because they were so well-dressed. Maybe you've seen teenagers in Walmart stopping for groceries or whatever on their way to prom, and you see them in the checkout line in, in evening wear, and, and they stand out. But notice that when you're overdressed for an occasion, no one asks you to leave. No one says, this is inappropriate. You, need, you, you can't come in here because you're so nicely dressed. No. When I, when I think about my day, I, I plan for the most significant event. And that means sometimes I'm wearing nicer clothes than I need to throughout the day. If I'm preaching on Sunday, but I have to stop the grocery store on my way to church, I still wear nice clothes on my way. When I perform a wedding or a funeral and I'm wearing a suit, sometimes I'm wearing that suit to places where I wouldn't normally wear a suit. And when I'm overdressed, I don't ever worry about that too much. It, it's always a, a confident feeling to, to be well-prepared. The problem comes when I'm underdressed. A couple years ago, I was here at church, and I was doing one of the physical challenges for our men's ministry fight club. And I've been running, timing myself. Uh, it, it was more of a jog for me, but it was strenuous, and it was hot, and I was sweaty, disgustingly sweaty. And Becca wanted me to stop and pick up something on the way home, even though I was wearing shorts and a cutoff shirt and drenched in sweat. And so I stopped at Meyer, thinking, okay, I can get out of the car and get what I need, 
get back in the car, be fine. Sure enough, I'm walking down the aisle and I bump into somebody from church. I say, hello, pat him on the back. And he pats me on the back and I go, oh, I can feel the damp shirt touching my back. And I just, I said, I'm sorry. I've been working out. I'm, I, I felt horrible because I was underdressed for the occasion. Maybe you've had one of those dreams of showing up at work at school and you're horribly underdressed for the occasion. It's a, it's a miserable experience. Paul reminds us, where you are is darkness. You're experiencing the difficulty of darkness. You're seeing all around you the deeds of darkness. Don't let those cover you. Don't let your life be stained by those deeds. Don't let your garments become ripped and torn and disgusting because of those things done at night. Think about the daylight that's coming and dress for the occasion. Be well prepared now. So when the light comes, you'll already be wearing the armor of light. And it will protect you. He said those words knowing, however, that there are many people who had already indulged in the things of darkness, had already given in to gratification, had already given up their inhibitions. And so he says very clearly, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Take off those dirty rags. And let the Lord supply you with perfectly clean white clothes. That's the image that we have of forgiveness through Christ. That by his sacrifice, our sins are washed away through the shedding of his blood. That our sinfulness, the dirty stains that cover us are removed. They're washed away. And instead of standing guilty before the Lord, we're given a new set of clothes. We're clothed with Christ so that when we stand before the throne of judgment, we're justified before the Lord, no longer guilty. But we're seen as innocent because Christ's innocence covers us. Now here, Paul doesn't tell us how that happens, but when he wrote to the Galatian church, he said this, in Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. When we recognize our sinfulness, when we recognize that we have been living in the darkness of night, indulging in the things of the darkness, the hope that we have is in Christ Jesus to cleanse us from those things, to make us whole and make us new. And when we recognize our sin, our need for forgiveness and repent of those sins, when we accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and are baptized in his name, we are clothed with Christ. And we are made new, justified before the Lord, provided with the power of the Holy Spirit that begins working in us to mold us and shape us, to renew our minds, transforming us into the image of Christ slowly, purposefully, helping us to grow in him. And that is who we are called to be, surrendered to the Lord, submitted to his will, recipients of his love, his gracious love, his benevolent love that we could never pay back. And when we receive it, we, we feel the significance, the importance the urgency to express his love to everyone around us, to those who are in need of forgiveness, to those who are in need of healing, to those who are in need of a savior. We live the love of God so that we can draw others into him.
this morning, if you have a decision to make about your relationship with Jesus, if there's anything in your life that you'd like to have some prayer for, I want to encourage you to come forward as we stand and sing together. Please stand.